The Middle East has become a hotbed for new, protracted and now proxy wars. The situation is not getting simpler and a solution does not appear any closer as the conflicts just get broader and more intricate. And Iran-backed groups weigh in under the guise of supporting the Palestinian cause. The first proxy attack took place just 11 days after the events of October 7 last year, when Iran-linked groups in Iraq launched drone attacks on a U.S. base there. These militias and others like them have been responsible for at least 180 attacks on U.S. targets. And the U.S. has been responding with increasing strength, launching a barrage of strikes against Iran-linked targets in Syria and Iraq in the past few days alone and against the Houthis in Yemen who have been disrupting shipping in the Red Sea one attack at a time, regardless of whether it's been hitting its target. All this comes despite the US saying that it wants things to stay calm in the Middle East. Unlike Iran, which has its proxies doing the majority of the work, the US is largely the face of its own strikes. And we're all here just trying to keep up and make sense of what's going on and where it's all going. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. In this episode, we'll be looking into the U.S. airstrikes in Syria and Iraq, how they may be new or different, and what the U.S. involvement's impact is going to have. Plus, where is all this headed? But first, some background. Israel's war in Gaza has entered its fifth month, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the region this week for the fifth time since October 7 of last year. His aim? To push for a truce and a, quote, enduring end to the violence. A tall order. The juxtaposition to Blinken's attempts at peace is that the U.S. is currently engaging in very unpeaceful airstrikes against the Iran-backed Yemeni Houthis, aiming to deter the group's drone operations in the Red Sea. That, so far, has not worked, experts say. The Houthis say they will escalate if Israel does not stop its war in Gaza. And this has only bolstered their own dwindling popularity in Yemen, which was extremely low just before the war in Gaza broke out. The U.S. has called their actions, quote, defensive. The U.S. has also launched attacks in Iraq recently against the groups that have been claiming strikes on U.S. bases. To help us make sense of it all, we go to a report from the Nationals' own correspondent in Baghdad, Sinan Mahmoud. Shortly before midnight on Friday, the U.S. forces launched airstrikes against Iran-backed militia groups in Iraq and Syria. The strikes, which lasted for a few hours, came in retaliation to a drone attack on the 28th of January, against U.S. troops stationed inside Jordan, near the borders with Iraq and Syria. That attack killed three U.S. service members and wounded more than 30 others. Friday attacks hit multiple locations used by the militias in western Iraq and eastern Syria. The five-day delay in launching the attacks meant that all senior or low-level members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps of Iran as well as senior militia members and commanders had evacuated, leaving behind the night guards of these sites. Politicians close to militia groups told the national that some leaders of the militias left to Iran or changed their phones or limited their movements inside Iraq ahead of the strikes. The Tehran allied militias have vowed to retaliate and to continue attacking the U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. And indeed, they didn't wait too long to respond. Iran has long supported Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria, providing them with training, funding, and weapons, and using them as a tool to exert influence and pressure on its rivals in the region, including the U.S. and its allies. The latest U.S. attacks are unlikely to deter Iran, 
because the Iranians know, and this has become clear to everyone, that the U.S. administration does not want a direct confrontation with them. And that U.S. strategy, according to some analysts, feeds Iranian confidence that its long-term proxy-driven attrition campaign against the U.S. is working. Overall, while the airstrikes may have succeeded in sending a strong message to Iran and its proxies, but they also risk further destabilizing the region and could undermine efforts to find a peaceful resolution to the long-standing tensions between the U.S. and Iran. To understand the broader impact of the recent U.S. attacks, I spoke with Charles Lister, a senior fellow and the director of the Syria and Countering Terrorism and Extremism programs at the Middle East Institute. Charles, you've said that these U.S. strikes have been the largest military operation since the Iraq War. So the big question is, are they actually effective and what is the end game here? So that is indeed a very big question with lots of uncertainty. There are many moving pieces at play all across the region at the moment, some of which we can control and frankly, some of which we cannot control. But I think it's worth acknowledging, as you say, that in in isolation, at least, the strikes that we saw the US conduct in Syria and Iraq were in and of themselves the most significant action we've seen in that theater since the Iraq war. But then so too are what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. That is the most aggressive sort of military campaign any actor has, has, has posed to that vital shipping route. So there are a lot of unprecedented going on uh, across the region, notwithstanding, of course, the, the war in Gaza, nearly 30,000 people killed in a matter of a few months. Um, so this is kind of almost unprecedented times. At the moment, the Biden administration has made it pretty clear that its only agenda item is containment, if we're looking at the regional picture writ large. And I I do think that the administration behind the scenes is trying to push quite assertively for a ceasefire in Gaza, which would make a significant impact on the regional equation. But as we're quite clearly seeing, the Israeli government is a sovereign government. It makes its own decisions. And the Netanyahu uh, leadership, of course, for obvious political reasons, wants to keep this war going for its own internal reasons. So we're kind of at a standstill when it comes to the Israel-Gaza situation, although obviously negotiations are going on. But regionally, it's containment. It's not resolution. It's not. We're not seeking to solve the crisis in Yemen, which have given the Houthis an excuse and an ability to do what they're doing. We're not looking to resolve the crisis in Syria. We're looking to keep troops in Iraq, but not resolve the tensions that we have in Iraq. So at the moment, it's containment. Do you say it's containment because they're strategic strikes or because anything but containment would include a much stronger U.S. response? Possibly in theory, depending on how the administration or an administration might perceive some of these challenges. I'm sat in Washington, D.C. It is impossible to ignore that both on the left and on the right, there are trends that have been in existence for a while now that do not believe that the U.S. should get deeply involved in any of the region's crises, let alone in trying to resolve any of the region's crises. That kind of fatigue about the region has resulted in the de facto approach, which is just, well, we'll just contain the situation. We'll do what we feel is necessary to protect American interests, which is keep international shipping flowing through the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, and put a stop uh, to what have been now over 180 Iranian proxy attacks on US troops in Syria and Iraq. Uh, but but again, that is containment. And frankly, as an analyst who's been studying and working in and around the region for years now, 
the fact that we are in this kind of reaction mode, we're doing tactical actions, nothing strategic, is because we haven't had a strategic approach to any of these crises for a long time. From Trump to Biden, the approach to Yemen has been containment and a prioritization of a ceasefire, but a ceasefire that did nothing to resolve the war itself in Yemen. The approach to Syria for years has been kind of either Tell us, shake our hands of the whole crisis. We don't want anything to do with it. Or let's just contain its symptoms. Let's contain the, the refugees. Let's contain the terrorism. Let's contain the Iranians. But nothing to actually resolve the root causes of the crisis. And the same can be said for Iraq. And then, of course, the elephant in the room, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, which is far longer running than any of those. And for a much longer period of time, the U.S. approach has been, well, it's just an impossible mission to resolve it. There's never going to be a, a, a true two-state two solution. So we contain it. And the Abraham Accords and everything that came from that, let's face it, that was a containment approach. It unquestionably was not an attempt to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. Speaking of which, Iran's position is worth looking into because when this all escalated on October 7, Iran said it does not want to see an expanded conflict in the region. But then again, all its proxies and the groups it backs with weapons, intelligence, one way or another, have been playing a role. But Iran itself seems to be sitting back and watching all of this unfold. What do you make of that? Well, Iran is doing, Iran is conducting or practicing precisely the strategy that it has been piecing together the puzzle pieces for many decades. There is a reason why it built a region of proxies, a network of proxies. And there's a reason why we call them proxies, by the way. They're not, they're not Iranians. They're not Iranian groups. They are proxies. So they are not 24-7, 365 days of the year under complete Iranian control. But they were established, trained, financed, and armed in order to conduct within their own local environments, activities that suited Iran's regional agenda. And so ever since October the 7th, we have seen an environment across the region that is essentially the perfect situation for Iran to trigger or mobilize that entire network to do its own bidding. So Iran is quite happy to sit back and be quiet. Iran is also quite happy to present itself diplomatically as not wanting escalation, not wanting to be directly involved. But this is a shadow game. I mean, in the Red Sea, in the Gulf of Aden, an Iranian spy ship, the MV Beshad, is literally feeding targeting data to the Houthis for every single attack. The IRGC Quds Force is on the ground in Syria and Iraq directing most of the attacks that are targeting US troops in that immediate region. And we all know how deeply rooted the Iranian relationship is with Hezbollah and, frankly, in re more recent years with Hamas in Gaza, too. So Iranian fingerprints are everywhere when it comes to escalation. But the fact that it's the proxies who are openly conducting these operations is exactly why Iran created them in the first place. So it could play this double game and look at it from the perspective of looking at U.S. policy I've described how it's reactive and it's tactical, but we've, we've also been sort of double-crossed by that Iranian game because this administration, everybody knows, doesn't want to get knee-deep involved in the region, doesn't want to do that again, wanted to pivot to great power competition and China and what have you. And so when R Iranian politicians or diplomats come out publicly and say, we don't want escalation, we don't want blah, 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 there is an extent to which 
the Biden administration is kind of taking that and taking and running with it and saying, well, fantastic, you don't want escalation. So we will publicly signal that we will only deal with your proxies, but not Iran. Um, and look at the the five days that it took for the strikes to happen in Syria and Iraq. Every single, like every six hours, the Biden administration was publicly signaling, we have no intention to strike Iran. We have no intention to strike Iranians. We have no intention to strike IRGC facilities outside of Iran. We have no interest in linking the Houthi campaign with what's happening in Syria and Iraq. And all of that is music to Iran's ears in this whole scenario, because it means they're winning. They have the advantage here. As we said earlier, the U.S. is the face of its own attacks. It is its own player to a large degree. And the Houthis have been saying that they're at war with the U.S. and Israel for a very long time. But now, this is actually the case. The Houthis have gotten what they want in a way. But can we talk about Syria for a moment? Syria is a big word in and of itself because there are many moving parts there. Can you give us a sense from the ground there? Can you help break it down for us? Yeah, well, I mean, Syria is, talk about complex, Syria is a very complicated place these days after nearly 13 years of internal and geopolitical conflict. I mean, most of the attacks that, that these Iranian proxies have been launching have actually come from Iraq. They they launched them across the border. Some short, more short-range attacks have been launched from Syrian territory, but, you know, that adds an, another level of complexity. So we have 900 troops in northeastern Syria, They are in Syria for a Syria specific mission, but they're being attacked by Iranian proxies based next door in Iraq um, and facing all kinds of dilemmas and questions about how to protect themselves. Yeah, at the same time, our local partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces, who we've fought alongside for years uh, uh, to, to liberate all of the territory from what ISIS called its, its state um, years ago, The SDF has a really complicated relationship with uh, with the Iranians because, on the one hand, the SDF is a either a rival or a competitor with the Syrian regime in Damascus, but at the same time, the SDF actually share military positions in northern Syria with the Russian military and Iranian proxies. And so, when the SDF has happened very recently, were targeted themselves by one of these Iranian militia attacks, and seven elite SDF commandos were killed, that just like throws that complexity up into the air. And God knows how that is resolved on a local level, because everybody has relationships with everyone. And when you dive deep down into the weeds here, there's places like like Kamishli in the northeast of Syria, which is generally mostly controlled by, by the Syrian regime. But the Iranians have worked very hard over the last couple of years to recruit local Sunnis to join newly formed Iranian proxy militias, whose only objective is to expel American troops from the Northeast. So you have this really complicated Turkish-Kurdish conflict in the Northeast. We have US troops trying to counter ISIS. We have Iranian militias recruiting Sunnis to target Americans. We have Iranian proxy attacks coming from Iraq into Syria, and now some of them into Jordan. Jordan not wanting to have anything to do with it. This is the perfect kind of melting pot for chaos. And there's no clear resolution to those kind of micro-tactical issues. That doesn't ultimately include a resolution to the Syrian crisis, which is totally ongoing right now. The humanitarian situation is worse than it's ever been. The regime's violent suppression of the population continues apace, like it has for the last 12, 13 years. The regime is now basically a narco state, and that is only getting worse. All of that feeds into 
all of the malign actors who want to sow chaos and to continue chaos. And that includes the Iranian proxies, that includes ISIS, that includes the regime and all of the other non-state actors. So principally, from an international perspective, we just got to finally accept that the Syrian crisis needs a resolution and start to take that seriously. But again, there's no appetite for that in Washington. Last one for you, Charles. Does Iran seem to have the upper hand right now? Iran, I think, unquestionably has the upper hand. It has the upper hand because it practices what we in our world call asymmetric warfare, which means it's not using like conventional means. It's not the Iranian army that's engaged in any of these conflicts. It's these proxies. And these proxies aren't necessarily using traditional means to attack their targets either. And it's that, as we've called it, that kind of sort of shadow game uh, operating by proxy that pose these fundamental dilemmas for the likes of the US. How do we respond? As you said, the US, every single US strike is an American strike. It is an American aircraft with an American missile and an American human being who's pressed the trigger. None of that can be said for Iran. And so there's people who who are often called hawks in the US who say, well, the only way to deter these Iranian proxy attacks are to start to target Iran or Iranian operatives. And quite frankly, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a hawk, but I do think that there is something to be said for that. The pro- From Iran's perspective, proxies are expendable. And so are the weapons that Iran provides to these proxies, most of which aren't super, super sophisticated. They're certainly not very expensive. They're manufactured en masse. All of these suicide drones and rockets and what have you, they're expendable too. But And locally, exactly. But from Iran's perspective, what is not expendable is the Quds Force, is senior Quds Force commanders who are literally the architects of this entire network. Charles and I have agreed to have another call where we get to unpack all of this even further, because if there's anything we just learned is that there is a lot to talk about. That's it for today. This episode of Beyond the Headlines was produced by Phil Green, Da'at Farid and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. For more, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on thenationalnews.com.